The roadside is littered with the bones of our broken promises. But, finally, we are back. You're listening to The Conversation. I'm Angus Anderson. I'm Micah Saul. And I'm Neil Prendergast. And if you're just tuning into the series, you may want to check out an earlier episode where we lay out the whole premise of The Conversation. Yeah, these are our final episodes. They were all recorded in 2013, and we've just been horrifically lazy about getting them packaged up for you. But they are now ready, and here they are. Neil and I are at the helm, and we are just going to introduce Jason Kelly Johnson, who is an architect from the Future Cities Lab in San Francisco. And when Mike and I were first starting the conversation, this was back in early 2012, we were at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, and we saw this amazing model. I mean, just an absolutely insane looking building, a building with like fins and scales and lots of moving parts, and you couldn't not walk up to this model. It was amazing. And there was a guy there, and the guy turned out to be Jason Kelly Johnson, and it was his model from his lab. So Mike and I walked up to him and said, hey, can we interview you someday? And we didn't get around to it on the first 2012 round of interviews. But when I was recording in 2013, I managed to reconnect with Jason. And we had a fabulous conversation about architecture, permeability of landscapes and systems, feedback, all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, listening to the interview, it really struck me as a great place to sort of restart uh, the conversation, rebuild that momentum, because this kind of interest he has in the, I don't know, how nature and culture aren't really separate things, builds upon a lot of the earlier stuff that we've had in the series. I'm thinking in particular of Timothy Morton, and his ideas touch on, I think, a few more too. Yeah, Joseph Tainter as well. And both Timothy Morton and Joseph Tainter come up in here. And because of the editing, I wasn't able to get them in by their first names. So we just say Morton and Tainter. If you've been listening to this project, you'll know exactly who we're talking about. If you're new to it, those are two episodes that you may want to go back into the archives and dig up. They're both fascinating and they both pop up throughout the series because the ideas in them resonate with a lot of different people. So having said that, let's start this thing back up. What is your work reacting to? What's sort of the crisis that you're, you're thinking about? There's several levels to that. I mean, I think in the latest body of research, and I think probably in the project that you found me through, the Hydromax project, was a kind of critique on the, on the city, especially the city of San Francisco, I think. We were looking at sea level rise specifically. And so the crisis was one of a kind of ecological crisis where it's, we all understand that the city of San Francisco and you know, any coastal city in the world, really, because of sea level rise, is in a crisis mode. And so the Hydromax project that was at SF MoMA that you had seen, that is a project that was explicitly critiquing how cities are, in a way, dealing with global climate change or not dealing with them. And can we um, give the, the listener a description of what this is and what it looks like? The visual was what captured my imagination yeah, first. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Hydromax is a, it's a system it's a network, it's a kind of mesh that sits at the edge of the San Francisco Bay. It kind of provides a kind of threshold 
between the the kind of aquatic environment and the and the terrestrial environment. And what it does is it provides a place for incubation where the water and the city can kind of come together in a productive fashion. So probably the best way to think of it is like the difference between a dam and, and a wetland. The city edge has become essentially productive wetlands where things are grown, where things are, are hatched, where machines and robots and plants and animals and synthetic biologies all sort of converge. So it becomes this like hyperactive space. So in the case of the, the Hydromax that we proposed, we sort of thought that you know, an entirely new kind of building, a new kind of system would need to be invented. So you know, looking at across this neighborhood at a certain point in time, they built these warehouses and they built these factories because there was something being built in them, in this case, submarines. So the buildings needed to look like that. Buildings needed to be erected very rapidly. So that's why they look the way they look. They're made out of concrete. They're long and they're thin and they gesture towards the bay because the goods that were being produced in them had to release these things out into the water. And so they're in response to their sort of specific situation. So do I think that buildings in 2013 that are trying to do something different, say they're trying to produce food, trying to become factories again, so I think that they need to look like steel mills from the 1930s? No, they, they actually have totally different sets of parameters that can guide them. So the Hydromax system and the Hydromax kind of buildings are highly tuned. They can harvest sunlight, they harvest fog, so they, they actually have these massive sky feathers that rise up into the sky. So when there's fog banks kind of rolling through San Francisco, the sky feathers are basically collecting condensation and then using that condensation as fresh water to begin to feed aquaponic, so basically fish farms, feed hydroponic systems for plants. And so the edge of the city becomes productive. It becomes a place where you certainly can distribute that stuff to the rest of the Bay Area, but it basically becomes a place where people can move to and becomes a public space, a place where you could do community farming and all of And reacts to different weather and tidal conditions and, tidal and things conditions. like that? So it uses the tide. You know, basically the building is, is on, on kind of stilts and it's using the tide, it's moving up and down with the tide. So really the idea was to actually shift the edge from being a tourist-driven Disney World, something that's static. And, and it's either that or it's these abandoned things. There's factories, there's other stuff. So the idea of Hydromax is just to kind of, in a way, like radically rethink the edge and look at how it could become a kind of productive, kind of an experimental space in the city. It actually could become a really radical place for new institutions to be sort of founded. It could become a place for Silicon Valley to pull its head out of its ass and actually do something productive to use the money of technological production to kind of remake a kind of new prototype for how cities can deal with with their edges and with water. We were sort of looking at San Francisco in the future and actually looking at how it's well known that the sea level rise will be around 18 inches, perhaps 24 inches in the next 100 years. So we know that the edge of the bay will be in question. We know that the things that we've done to the edge of the bay will have to adapt and, and change. And so we were sort of looking at the logical solution will be to build a wall around the edge of San Francisco, keep the water out, let the edge be kind of calcified in its kind of current state. And that project was actually looking at a kind of alternative sort of vision for it. Let the forces of climate change 
actually be a kind of real thing, that water and a city kind of begin to coexist. So instead of seeing climate change as this thing, we should build a wall around it, kind of fortify it, see it as a kind of an opportunity to rethink these structures that were put in place. So, you know, I guess I question why, why are we so unwilling to give up these structures? But we have this kind of nostalgia for it, and so we're not willing to really give it up. In fact, those buildings have been protected, and the edge in many ways is stuck in time. And so, you know, you asked me what the sort of the enemy is. Well, one enemy is just sort of this nostalgia for times past, this kind of thinking that, that there was a kind of point in time that should be sort of preserved, and that's a kind of penultimate point of time. And I think, you know, the American city, in a lot of ways, suffers from this kind of nostalgia. I'm curious, I want to break down that nostalgia a little bit more and, and go, like, what are what are we trying to get into? What are we trying to recreate that we think is gone when we're holding on to this coastline here? I mean, this is kind of World War II stuff. You know, there's certainly, when you think about World War II, it's used so often, and World War II in the 50s afterwards, yeah. it's like halcyon day. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah no, like, absolutely. You know, my breakdown, there's lots of factors to it, but there's a kind of a safety factor, I would imagine. Okay. There's a kind of a notion that that it's a time when things were clearer and things were more legible. They weren't as complex, there were less inputs. There was less of a, a need to fuse, let's just say, an ecological thinking with a kind of built thinking. So we weren't really too worried about you know, where materials came from or what they actually did or how they might kind of pollute at a certain point in time. And there's a kind of safety in that. Safety in, in the naivety. In the naivety and the, and the kind of lack of kind of knowledge. And there's a sort of, you know, there are architects that I think are, quote unquote, you know, sustainable designers. But they don't actually see the connection between a building being green and being ecological and generating energy and all this stuff. And also being really well designed and actually being really innovative and actually still doing something really active at the kind of urban scale. So there's a lot of projects that will take an old structure and just wallpaper it in solar panels. And yet they don't really understand that the potential of cities is really they could create their own culture. You know, I think our, our work is much more interested in questioning the notion that architecture is a static entity. Part of our thinking in terms of architecture is how do we make a building breathe? How do we give a building a kind of like a, almost a nervous system? And how do we actually get a, you know, have a building be much more sort of intermeshed with the pulse of a place, with both its sort of natural systems, the wind, the sunlight, the geothermal condition, all of these kinds of things. Then also to how do we take people and how do we take inputs from all the stuff, all the really crazy stuff that's happening through social media, through just sort of computation, through embedded networks and sensors and those kind of stuff and have architecture be a kind of critical intersection point mm -hmm. for those things. There's a really interesting parallel there, you know, thinking of, of architecture as this fixed, unchanging space, like that steel building outside there. And the connection that you were talking about earlier with the coastline is this fixed thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I can totally see now why you would be interested in Morton, right? Because Morton is interested in, in what is natural. Right. It feels like in a way, part of the critique we're dealing with is a society that likes things to be neat and clean. Like there's a sort of modernism about it, liking control. I like that you touched on the, the cultural aspect there too. You know, the idea that, that a lot of the stuff here harkens back to an era where things were simpler. There's kind of a, a facing the realization that we're in 
that, that we know all this stuff about the world. As Morton would say, there's no way anymore, and we're starting to realize what that means, and in a way that our architecture or our design of the coast or walling out the sea level rise is an effort to get back to a time where we couldn't, where we didn't know that stuff and we could just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If those things are in play, there's something else I wanted to ask about there, which I think ties into that, but the idea of control, mm -hmm. you know, as part of the thing that we're critiquing, is it a need to control the world? Like to really know all the operational variables, all of the assets, and is that a problem? Now, that's a very interesting question because we're replacing one kind of control with another kind of control. But it's, a, it's in a way, it's a much more, it's more akin to like synthetic biology where you're understanding many more of the variables and you're able to script things in a way that's more open-ended that allows more feedback, I would say, into the system. It's not about like building a dam. It's about building something that is kind of soft. It could operate on one extreme like a dam but it has the capacity to adapt to the point where it would let something flow entirely. So in other words, there's a really different way to think about control, one that has feedback mechanisms and kind of heuristic elements, sort of borrowing from artificial intelligence, how our bodies work, how intelligent beings are able to, to control things, but they're able to do that with a gradient. Timothy Morton, the way that I read his work and has got me really thinking about the, the kind of blurring the distinction between something that is, you know, living and, and non-living or natural and artificial. I mean, I have really come to the almost, you know, philosophical conclusion that it's, it's just fruitless to actually start to draw those lines between things because things aren't absolutely one or kind of the other. They're these things that are moving back and forth and really blurring distinctions. A lot of those distinctions were made at a certain point in time when control was about one on or off. But things, I think, have gotten much more blurry in kind of an analog sense. So we've gone from a one and a zero to trillions of ones and zeros that create a, a, a much softer, pulsing understanding of everything around us. Do you think that intimidates us? I would say that a lot of the planet doesn't really think about it. I think as a designer, I think it asks you to set up an entirely different sort of way of approaching the world. Things aren't absolutely always the right thing. It means that as a designer, you're not, you're not designing for a single moment or a single situation. You're actually designing for a range of moments and a range of situations. I'm sure you've read people like Manuel Delanda. I audited one of his courses when I was teaching at, uh, at UPenn. And the first class, he took a huge, like, 500-page book and, like, put it on the table. And then he said, what I want you to do is to look at this, and I want you to study the book, think about its weight, think about the table, think about its transference to the ground, think about the concrete, think about how that transfers through concrete into the earth. And then he said, sort of shut your eyes and imagine all of the force flow lines. And he drew an arrow. And he said, I want you to just, in your mind, think about arrows and think of things transferring and interconnected. And I'm just abstractly think of that as a kind of this constant kind of force flow. But that kind of thinking and the way that we could begin to perceive the physical world as not being these discrete, independent things, it's this or that, but that things are much more kind of intermeshed. And the way that you get to that is probably through, I think in the beginning, is looking at you know, mass and weight heat. 
really tangible stuff. Tangible sort of physical things. And then from that, I think being a designer in a world that philosophically is like that, it does become more, more difficult. One of the things we realize with our work is we are probably never going to build Hydromax. Um, the bigger idea of Hydromax is a powerful one and that people are looking at that as a kind of potential. I'm, I'm interested in kind of the, uh, the logical extensions of this sort of change because it seems like there's a big mindset change here going from the fixed to the flexible. And then it feels like, well, how do you cope with that? Do you just uh, you know, completely acquiesce to the change? Do you try to resist it entirely? And that's where I'm interested in Hydromax again, is that you deal with some of it. You're going to let the bay rise. You're not going to try to turn this whole industrial civilization back to the Stone Age. But you're also not just going to stand by mm -hmm. and let the bay rise and, and not do anything. Right, you right. Know? Yeah, yeah. You're not going to let Bangladesh flood, right. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a really interesting conversation with a woman who came and toured the office a couple of weeks ago, and I was showing her a project that we did a few years back called the Glaciarium Project. It's a vertical cylinder of ice that sits in this container, and you walk up to it, and you look through this little viewfinder, and you actually can look at the, at the piece of ice. And on the viewfinder, where your eye is uh, able to look in, there's a little sensor there and the sensor triggers a heat element within the vitrine and actually begins to accelerate the melting of the ice. So the more that you look at the object, the more that you participate in its destruction. And so the idea was to make a kind of fetishized container that you would look at this ice, understand that you are actually destroying the thing that's absolutely beautiful that you're looking at. And then we, we basically collected the water from the melting ice core in a basin below it as the ice falls out, it hits a contact mic. And so the sound of the melting ice, you could hear it throughout the gallery. Anyways, I was just showing the, this woman this project and she sort of looked at me and she just sort of said, that's so sad, that, that's so sad. Why don't you give people the chance to fix the ice? Couldn't you do something in there so that it could stop the heat or it could maybe refreeze the ice or that why did you do this to people and then we had a whole talk about climate change and reaching this kind of critical point we sort of almost have this feeling that well you know i can do this or i can participate in that and then you know it won't matter so much i can always take it back you know it's like a global carbon credits you know this kind of logic is just absurd and we almost feel like we've got our own internal carbon credits or that we'll screw up, but we'll have more kids and then they'll, they'll fix the problem. Um, if you take something like Hydromax, this really optimistic statement yeah, yeah. of being able to work with changing conditions, yeah. is there any reason not to burn all the fossil fuel and just develop really neat new ways of living in a planet that's incredibly hot? Yeah. I don't know. I guess that's not really for me. That's not really the right question. Is it, is it wrong to do that? I guess I think... Sure, we absolutely have the capacity to do it. And I, I kind of pessimistically believe that that's sort of where we're heading. Do I think that that's a productive use of my daughter's time? That she should be basically involved in massive radical geoengineering projects? If that's what the way the world is going to be, it, it's, it's sort of sad. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's probably more optimistic ways to sort of live in the future. You know? So maybe yeah. the question isn't one of right or wrong, but it's a question of, do you lose something when you accept just letting it heat up yeah. and adapting? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I guess I'm a, I'm a sort of romantic in the sense that, you know, I think that I'd much rather be spending the, the time on things like art and culture, philosophy. Like, I think there's been moments in time that have led us to think that there could be ways of living that are less about always trying to fix a you know, massive problem and then maybe there's a, another way to, to live. But maybe that's my just total nostalgic vision of it. And so maybe I am a kind of total utopian and believe that there is a way forward in which we're not going to be constantly responding to these massive things. But, I mean, again, I think that we're reaching, we've reached a tipping point if we are going to resist mm-hmm. these things. We are going to have to get involved in these sort of massive geoengineering things, cloud seeding. I talked to uh, a guy at Harvard named David Keith, who's one of the, the major geoengineering scientists. And, you know, he, he sees it as like, you should never be at a point where you need to even consider this stuff. Right. I think the thing that stuck with me about that conversation was that he was saying, we really can't make a case for, say, the polar bear or for any of these yeah. things that we could lose yeah. if the climate changes. You can't make the case for that financially and you shouldn't try. Yeah. Set geoengineering aside for a second and just say that if you want to appeal to people to save the polar bear, you need to say... There's something intangibly valuable about the polar right. bear. And he was willing to say that. You know, yeah. you can't say, yeah. well, really, if you save the Arctic dice, then, you know, economically you'll benefit in the long run right. because X, Y, and Z won't happen. He said, don't even make that argument. He said the challenge is to convince people that life and that kind of diversity has value. Yeah. It's an irrational idea of good. I mean, when we talk about a, a vision of a better future, um, which I'd like to move into here, is that part of it? I mean, it seems like when you're talking about there are things like arts and philosophy and all these things that have value, presumably. Yeah. You might be hard-pressed to make me a case that there's more economic value to those than, say, building steel factories out here. Right. But you could probably make a case to me where there is some other kind of value that we're not seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, why are those things valuable? Because I think that maybe one of the reasons we're in the place we are is that we lost the sense that the kind of urban life, the idea of a kind of a forum, the idea of a kind of intelligent dialogue could emerge from a city in the way that it's, it's sort of designed and the way that people are sort of interacting with each other. In other words, a lot of architects right now are involved in making, you know, green buildings and, and these are really good things. But I also think that the value of architecture is not just as a kind of engineered system, as a kind of problem solving system. It's that there's a kind of cultural, kind of social, probably political dimension to architecture that should be intermixed with things like ecology and things like agriculture. You know, all of our food production happens remotely in the Central Valley. All of our pollution is happening in another place. And our cities have become places where people are sitting in kind of glass towers and they're completely disassociated from all of these ecological things and all the kind of productive things and so we sort of partitioned off our world and I think we're in a we're in the place we're in because the politics and the money and all these things are kind of super separated from things so we're able to sort of blindly operate and so part of the Hydromax idea is that we're beginning to try and cross-knit these things together so that as a politician as a financial person as someone who's involved in all these different levels that you're bringing these things closer you know you can't not know what they're doing. That's really interesting. I think that's a really neat way of, of answering sort of the question that Torcello put forward. Like, how do you how do you respond to the crisis of the present when it's stupidity? And this this seems to be like maybe it's not stupidity, but it's a bunch of people who live divorced from reality. Right. So if you can sort of address that 
through space, yeah. through forcing people to be familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty routine, I think, in a lot of places for folks to never actually encounter or have any knowledge of anything around them in terms of where it's made, how it's made, what it's made from, what it's connected to. So Hydromax really is utopian in that sense. And one of the critical things with the project is that there's a kind of implicit circuit, you know, making these productive agricultural sequences in a city make those a part of the loop that you might routinely sort of move through. And so part of this was like these massive kind of aquaria that you'd actually see these kind of robotic harvesting machines that were sort of harvesting and kind of growing and kind of tending to the fish and then... So there'd be this sort of crazy technological system in place there, but it would be somehow close to you, and it'd be right. sort of... So you know when you order the fish at the restaurant that somehow, somewhere that robotic arm down the street is out looking something for your dinner. There. So it's, just, it's sort of like tightening the loop. But I'm trying to figure out, you know, within even that sequence, is that just a kind of nostalgia? I mean, could those aquaria be virtual? Would it really matter? Does proximity necessarily matter? Would it, would it actually change things? That's an interesting question. And I mean, when you mentioned the virtual aquarium, I think that gets us to a point that I like to bring in. I think we've touched on it a lot of different ways in this conversation, but the idea of the good, right? Why are the real fish right. good for the stuff we're talking about? Are we talking about we need to be working on these things exclusively for their value to us? You know, you have the fish farm because you eat it, yeah. or yeah. do you have the fish farm also for the fish in yeah. some weird yeah. intrinsic way? And yeah. I realize that could sound like it's philosophically splitting hairs, yeah. but I think it yeah. leads to different outcomes. Yeah, That's a, that's a very tricky one. Um, selfishly, I think there's a value... I mean, I grew up in a really different world where I had at least an understanding of where these things were in their sort of so-called native environment. I, mean, I grew up in, in Canada, just outside of Calgary. And I remember as a kid being able to go to these like fantastic places that were, maybe they weren't virgin places, but they were like ultra out there. And uh, having this like incredible sense of the origins of like a fish and of a, of a kind of a plant in a kind of a place. What value is it to a human being to have that, to have that knowledge of, of the kind of the origins of things? Would I be the same human if I basically just ate, you know, protein cakes and had no knowledge of the origins of things? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, um, and is that is a it? conversation that can even happen? In this case, like it's an experience of your childhood. Right. And you might be talking to someone else who has that synthetic protein cake experience of their childhood, yeah. which is, you yeah. know, just covered with nostalgia. Yeah. Um, and yeah. both of them might lead you to thinking very different things about whether or not we should preserve a fish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I mean, the question of diversity, it's been documented that it's even for the health of our species as we know it, that the, having that incredible diversity is a really critical thing. But I mean, in a lot of ways, what you're describing is the capacity for humans to potentially live totally divorced from, from these things. You know, you can play it through. The International Space Station, you know, we're already experimenting with these things. And I, I think it'd be a worthy exercise, but it's definitely not a world that I necessarily want to live in. Uh, Is that kind of the, the irrational bedrock that we're dealing with here? The idea that just that stuff has value, and I mean, maybe that could be a spiritual thing or a yeah. religious thing, or it has nothing to do with either of those, but it's just held yeah. in some people yeah. and not yeah. held in others? 
I mean, I'm actually, you know, really fascinated with artificial intelligence and things like machine vision and how, I mean, just on a really deep level, like how, how would that mean? What would it mean if I actually invent, say, an artificially intelligent neural network, small, like robotic something as a species? Is it any different than, let's say, that trout that I encountered as a, as a child? Would my daughter, if she's encountering this artificially intelligent robotic entity, does it mean as much to her as the trout did to me. You, you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like the things that I valued in that experience, the way that that fish could adapt, the way that it would, every year it would be cycling through all of these different ways to kind of survive, the way it would sense its environment, the way that it would, you know, had all these incredible things it would, it could do. Does it matter that it's a biological thing? Right. Um, a hypothesis kind of behind this series is that there are these moments of massive historical change. Yeah. There was a zeitgeist to a time period, and enough people went, let's charge this direction. Right. And things really changed rapidly yeah. from a long era of stability. And so I don't know if that's a real thing or if that's just something that kind of we create, a pattern yeah. that we find in the historical record. Yeah. Um, but do you think there is anything to that hypothesis? And if so, do you think we're living in a time like that? Mm -hmm. Or we should be? Yeah, I think, look, I, I think I'm looking at it from the perspective of a, of a designer, a, a, say an architect, someone who's dealing with the physical realm. Do I think that we're, we're in, a, in a moment of kind of radical reformation right now? Probably not. I think there's radical form making happening. I think that there's uh, hints of real innovation. Do I think we're in it yet? No. Do I think we're beginning to sort of head in that direction? I think that there's stuff that's happening in the way that we are making the physical environment the capacity for the physical environment to become much more sort of responsive and mediated, much more sort of attuned to social networks and to political networks in a much more sort of fluid and, and kind of dynamic way. I think that that stuff, there's the potential for that to happen. I think we're probably at the beginning of it. Right now, I don't think having um, 35 apps on my iPhone is putting me in the middle of a, a revolution. It's, I think it's when those apps actually begin to much more directly affect the physical realm and put me closer to a public realm and a kind of a city that is much more sort of productive and much more positive ecologically than I think that we're going to get closer. Uh, but you see hints of it. You know, a company like Tesla is a really radical experiment and you're seeing them chugging away and you're seeing them trying to fundamentally like rethink the automobile. And that's something that's being sort of hatched in this environment. And that's physical, and the car has direct implications to how cities get made. Mm -hmm. But I'm not totally positive it's, it's actually radicalizing, say, architecture yet. Do you think that's something that's ever going to come about through conversation, or is it reaction to, like, do we have to drive the ecology off a bridge, yeah. face a real crisis, and then we sort of react? Or is it something you think we can preemptively go, well, we're getting the data in, let's start really changing yeah. our footprint? Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but I really do believe that there are some critical moments in time where things happen because of, of there is a crisis. San Francisco is a great example of a city that did really radical things after 1909 and the earthquake and hasn't done a whole lot since then. And so, yeah, I hate to say it, but it is true that sort of radical moments do begin to kind of produce, you know, radical things. I see a lot of folks in my generation, say our generation, that are really thinking and are really you know interested in building and doing radical 
things, but they're just not, there's no one really out there that's commissioning them or that's actually trusting them and engaging them. That's actually allowing the thinking to become physical. You know, you don't see a figure like Bill Gates saying, okay, let's, let's, let's remake the city in a radical way. There's a certain sadness that you have an incredible group of super well-educated people that have you know, deep knowledge and you don't have a president nor do we have a business leaders that are, that are really investing in kind of rebuilding of the city. So you, you see a lot of bottom-up DIY stuff kind of happening, which I think is actually really interesting. But I'm not totally convinced that it's, it's going to be enough. On some levels, I think a lot of the greatest sort of buildings happened because there was a person or a set of people that just sort of said, okay, this is what we need to do. In that sense, I think our generation is maybe not as productive as it could be or should be. You could go to architecture schools around the planet right now and you'll see them playing with radical ideas, but we just don't have the, the urgency, let's just say, in, the, in the, this country to even, let alone experiment, but even to fix our you know, most basic infrastructural you know, systems. So there is no kind of Manhattan project for the built environment or the ecological environment, which there could be. And it could be really fantastic experiment. Um, Do you think conversation matters? Yeah. I wouldn't be a teacher if I didn't, if I didn't think it mattered. I think there's, there should be more of it. You can see the tension in the Bay Area. You have Silicon Valley and then you have San Francisco. You have a company like Apple building a massive new kind of campus out in the suburbs in Silicon Valley. All those employees are sitting on buses every day coming into San Francisco to live in a city. And so you have this kind of very funky tension between these worlds. I think conversations are really good beginning points, but they have to have the feedback from kind of critical experiments brought into them. And that, that's a lot of the way that this practice begins to sort of operate is we talk a lot, I teach a lot, we experiment a lot, and then we try and do small experiments to sort of see what happens. And just to hope it gets out there. Hope it gets out there. I mean, I think right now we're trying to scale up to do work that resists the monotonous nature of contemporary building development and just find like really specific people and clients that allow us to do the work. And maybe we do a lot of like pro bono work where we try and get paid for certain things. And then that helps us to do work for certain clients that probably never would afford it or be able to do it. So that's a lot of the way that this studio is, is operating right now. And you said uh, earlier you're an optimist? Mm-hmm. I think I'm actually probably one of the most optimistic people that I know, but I also think that I'm also one of the most pessimistic people I know on a certain level. So I kind of oscillate. I guess I'm, I'm secretly pessimistic. I'm coming to conclusions about certain things. I keep a lot of that to myself. And I try and temper it with like, okay, you know, that's, that's really fucking dysfunctional and really screwed up, but like, let's just try and see if we can rethink this and do this a little bit better. So in that sense, I'm a kind of, I'm an optimist. I definitely believe in technology. I definitely believe in the interplay of technology and philosophy. And that's what probably makes me an optimist, you know. I think I see a lot of people that are, go to engineering school and then they come out with no understanding of philosophy or, or politics or ecology and that always just dis- really disturbs me. So I think what I try and do and the way I try and teach is to give people a much deeper understanding of technology, engineering, the arts, and kind of make it a, a massive mix-up. I don't think you can have a world in which you're just doing engineering or you're just doing art. I, mean, I think those things have to always have this interplay and I'm optimistic when I 
when I see that kind of happening. I see that here in the Bay Area with like kind of the maker movement. I see that in, in young kids right now. I had an amazing meeting today with uh, Carl Bass, who's the CEO and founder of Autodesk. He was telling me his 15-year-old kid came home and wants to make a, some kind of vehicle so he can ride around the city, electric, Arduino-driven vehicle that he could drive around with his iPad if he wanted to. So when it wasn't in, he could send it out to pick up his friends. This is like so funny, you know, 15-year-old. But, you know, I think for me that's actually really interesting. And so that makes me optimistic, right, that there's like this other generation that is beginning to emerge that isn't going to sit back and wait for the, the mega corporation to sort of produce everything, that we actually might begin from a, in a bottom-up way kind of beginning to make things that we think are productive and ecologically sensitive and maybe that, maybe that we're shifting a little bit from waiting around for some massive politician or political movement that we're, but maybe there's another way forward. I've never really seen it work. Like I'm still probably a part of that generation that thinks that there's got to be this thing up top that commissions this thing, but I'm seeing hints that this kind of bottom-up approach might actually begin to, in a way, aggregate to produce something actually really interesting. So whether he's the most pessimistic optimist or the most optimistic pessimist, uh, the jury's out. But this is a conversation with a lot of nuance in it, which I think is always fun. You know, we've talked about it before. It's always a little bit harder when someone is very real about things. They're like, I don't know, it could be this way, but I can also visualize it as this way. And you can't just have like a, a simple point-counterpoint interview. Real life is messy, real life is gray, and that's something that Jason really does not shy from. And what I love is that it's also in his, his actual designs, right? They're all about permeability, nuance. You work with the tide. You work with cycles of fog and San Francisco's bay. You know, there's all sorts of stuff like that, which is analog. It's just a lot of different, different values. It's not a, a digital one and zero. Right, and there's that permeability between nature and culture, uh, you know, as you described with the uh, the tides and so forth. Uh, and there's also sort of a permeability, it sounds like, between the designer and the user. Or if permeability doesn't quite work there, at least there's a feedback loop. That is another good way of thinking about permeability, right? With the tide, there's always the feedback loop. The water level goes up, the building does something different. The water level goes down, the building does something different again. And maybe the, the things it's doing also change the water level. So there's a kind of constant conversation between building and tide. And as you mentioned, there's a constant conversation between new types of projects and how people receive them and how the designers see them when they're built large. You know, that's something that, like... Everything Jason talks about in terms of his own work seems like it's kind of iterative. He's someone who's really interested in, like, what does the prototype do? And then how do you make a better prototype? And as I think is the case with probably most designers, th there's also still yet a desire to have a, a lot of funding and, and to do a big project, it sounds like. Right. And there's that, that interesting tension in the interview where it seems like he's not of one mind. Does change come from the top down? Does change come from the bottom up? You know, does it come from the maker movement? Does it come from the kid designing kind of the segue thing? Or does it come from like the big funder and the brilliant designer who's got a new idea and someone's got the space to build it? I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like I go back and forth too and have gone back and forth throughout this project because some interviewees have been really hard. Like change comes from the bottom up and other ones are like, 
No, you really just convince a few people and change will then come from the top down. And I think with design, there's a certain history too that would certainly structure any kind of conversation people are going to have about that exact problem. I can't help but mention Jane Jacobs, the New Yorker who was uh, so famous against interstate highways being built through her neighborhood. And there was really a critique in the 1960s and 1970s, more than a critique, an activist movement against a lot of the interstates. And there were a lot that weren't built because of grassroots communities saying, you know what, we don't want this through our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you talk about interstates, that immediately brings something to mind that Jason was talking about. You know, he was talking about it would be great to have, I mean, I think he says a Manhattan project of like design, like something really big that gets a lot of funding that rethinks the whole landscape. And I think, well, there kind of was a time where we did that. And it was kind of the 60s and 70s and 50s too. You know, the Eisenhower interstate system certainly qualifies. There's a lot of urban redevelopment that happens in that time period. I mean, Tucson lost 80 acres of our, our best homes to a very brutal modernist convention center that was centrally planned. And so it's it's interesting because it feels like Jason really doesn't like nostalgia for these buildings that seem like they've outlived their social role. You don't need the sub bays anymore. At the same time, it seems like he feels like, oh, we really need a lot of funding for designers again. And I think, God, the last time we really funded designers, they created the whole landscape that he wants to destroy, right? And that that so many people now have a complete distaste for. I really do think that the freeways were the Manhattan Project of design. The designers there had a free hand in doing most of what they wanted to do. They had great funding. There was a political economy that supported it. And yet today, a lot of people look back and say, oh my gosh, what, what, what did they build? We got, that's where we got addicted to oil, a landscape that's not the human scale. Why would we want that? And even at the time, actually, there were a lot of communities that railed against new interstates. Think of cities like New Orleans protesting against an extension of interstate right through the town, eventually steered it away. But across the country, you see this. And today, we really share the opinion of those activists, or at least a great many of us do, where we look at those things and we just think, how crazy were these people to build that? And that it was so well-intentioned. Absolutely. Right? Like, I mean, I don't think anyone really thought about the idea of carving up a neighborhood. It seemed more like, oh, well, you're bringing new traffic in or you're bypassing something so traffic won't be pouring through your neighborhood. And won't that be nice? Or now automobility is so accessible that a middle-class woman could count on having an automobile. They weren't stuck at home. So it was a part of freedom for a lot of people. Which is really interesting when you think about, you know, in many ways, like how much that changed the landscape into something that feels like it's the absolute antithesis of what we want. It is, in a lot of ways, the antithesis of what Jason is doing with projects like Hydromax, which are so much about creating a space in which you live, you work, you consume, and you're, you're tied into a really tight loop of seeing the economic cycle around you. And I think for a lot of people, that's a world that they want to live in. The massive influx of new residents into old city centers that we've been seeing over the past like 15 years, 20 years, seems to reveal that, in fact, people do want walkable landscapes. But it's also fascinating to think that like maybe there's some lingering distrust of big scale projects and, and massive funding for design because... We feel like we've seen it go so wrong. So it's, it's interesting because like, well, if you gave Jason a blank check and 20 acres of, of Bayside industrial property in San Francisco, 
I think you'd get something that would be incredible. And it would be something that would probably be an awesome place to live. But I do think people would be afraid to give him that check because they would, somewhere they would be like, what if it becomes obsolete in the same way those freeways became obsolete, in the same way those urban redevelopments became kind of blights themselves? Right. Maybe, you know, part of the issue here is just cultural change over time that Mm -hmm. we can't go too big because, well, not that the designers are necessarily going to get it wrong, but uh, the public, the communities, uh, residents, workers, whomever, they might change their minds. Which I think is something that Jason would be totally on board with, right? Because he's anti-nostalgia. As the needs change, he thinks the buildings should change. But I think in the way that the people who fund buildings think, they don't think that way. We don't like thinking of, of buildings as something that are really for a cultural moment. Uh, we don't see buildings as in conversation with us. I think all of us somewhere want our buildings, our little homes and things, to stand like a pyramid. You know, we like the idea that it will be there forever as this monument to this moment in time. And there's something really fun and also challenging about Jason saying, that's not what a living landscape is. This is a little bit of a preview into what the future episodes are going to be discussing. But I think that there's also something really great, a great value in design, which is that it articulates the alternatives that might be out there for us. That was Jason Kelly Johnson, recorded in his studio at the Future Cities Lab in the Dogpatch neighborhood of San Francisco, June 6th, 2013. And this is The Conversation.